Um, so this is uh, tonight is the fifth talk in our series on the five great stages of the spiritual path. And I've entitled this talk, Transforming in the Light of Our Vision. So it's on the fourth stage of the path, which is the stage of transformation and spiritual rebirth. So it's a very uh, beautiful uh, stage, actually a very radical uh, stage of radical change, radical transformation. So for a brief recap on where we've come from so far, uh, yes, yeah, so after the last, over the last few weeks, we have been slowly but surely exploring the teaching of these uh, five great stages of the spiritual path, which was introduced by uh, Bhante, our teacher Sangrachita, um, at a previous date, I don't remember right now, in the 70s, and uh, it's one that's uh, inspired quite a lot of teaching in the movement since then. So in the first stage of the path, uh, the first uh, talk of the first stage, we started by getting a firm foundation in ourselves and in our spiritual practice, becoming more integrated. So that was a stage of integration through mindfulness and awareness, the mandala of integration. And this quality of integrating ourselves allows us to become that much more present, actually, in ourselves. And we can be really there in our practice and with each other. And therefore, we're able to really commit ourselves to our spiritual practice and you know, have consistency and take that practice deeper. So it's a very, very f important stage. And uh, we never leave that stage behind. So we just keep on with that practice and that goes deeper and deeper as we go through the other, all the other stages. And this, in a way, blossoms into this second stage, which is of a creative emotional positivity which comes very much out of our deepening practice and our integration as uh, the conflicts we experience due to the lack of integration really and conflicting parts of ourselves begin to harmonize and uh, we become more of a flow of positive energy. We should all be beginning to experience that quite a bit I think in our lives through our meditation particularly and that's deepened through meditation. Our minds become more at peace with themselves actually and when we're more able naturally to rest in that and concentrate and particularly um, you know, when we're meditating and also when we're not meditating, perhaps we're just a bit more ease with ourselves, able to go deeper. And it's out of that that this third stage, which we talked about last week, the stage of vision and insight, is enabled to arise because uh, the stiller and the more sort of focused and whole our minds are, the more we naturally just sort of see clearly how things are. Uh, we see gradually, uh, or maybe insights bubble up in our experience in everyday life. And last week I talked about, uh, we approached it through gateways that were different uh, gateways to tr the truth, to reality. So if you weren't here last week, that's on uh, the website. You can hit explore some of those gateways to reality. Um, but yeah, I'm just headlining them. I was. Um, exploring really how those could be through a deepening practice of awareness and mindfulness that could be one of the most important ones um, in a way that you could say um, real insight into the nature of existence is just a deeper awareness is a more true and more focused and more penetrating awareness of just how things are every day and I, I remember pointing out that reality isn't something out there that we suddenly become aware of it's uh, there's no sort of thing called reality. It's to do with a different awareness of ourselves 
as we are now in, in everyday life. That uh, we just, it's a sort of transition in our perception. It's obviously rather a large one. Being aware of the nature of, of things more fundamentally in terms of impermanence and substantiality and unsatisfactoriness as well. So, yes. So, traditionally, uh, insight is said to consist in seeing through, I was thinking of it as seeing through this sort of glittery, um, rather fascinating, alluring surface of the world, which is our day to day experience. And through insight, we sort of see through. Uh, and see that these thi that things aren't as we initially assume them to be. We assume permanence and substantiality. But things we begin to actually realise, in a way, partly through life experience and partly through our meditative experience, that um, uh, yeah, that things are in flux. They're in constant change. Um, it can happen. I was talking last week actually as well about experiences of bereavement. Um, and maybe times of great disappointment in our lives or great stresses. Um, we can actually, for a moment, and maybe f even for longer, uh, in a way sort of see through this um, mirage that we have, this sort of way of thinking of uh, life as being permanent and opportunities are always going to be there for us. Um, but actually, sometimes I think it's more, we, we begin to realise actually, it's perhaps as we get older as well, that. Uh, that isn't the case and we just need to, uh, if an opportunity presents itself, we should actually not waste any time and not procrastinate. Being a pro great procrastinator myself, I, I've <coughs> seen this over and over again, um, but that's part of the nature of reality actually is that just things aren't going to wait for us. Uh, we need to sort of grasp, move into what we, uh, what we see as being our next step. So this insight isn't an, an intellectual thing. It becomes, it, it, may, it starts as an intellectual framework and a knowledge and a understanding, but it actually then becomes more like a, a real knowing that we really, really do know that's how things are and becomes a, a real experience, a sort of um, a bit like when we actually, when we've tasted an orange, we really do know what the taste is. So there's, not, there's no question about it, it's very, very clear. And it isn't just to do with how the world is, of course, it's to do with how we are, it's to do with us. And we're not separate from, from the world. So we could say that we really are, we are change. We embody insight, we embody reality in our souls. And it's sort of very hard to, these are just words, aren't they? But it's hard to um, sort of take that in. Somebody, somebody said actually once, which I thought was rather good, that we, each of us, we're really a verb. So actually, uh, even our names can fix us. So you could think that we've got a vanessa -ing over there and a Rachel-ing and a, a Mogalilo-ing. Uh, it would be more true to think of ourselves as verbs, a Chandana-ing, uh, rather than perhaps a name which can seem a bit uh, solid and stuck. So, yeah. So I'm talking a bit about this insight again this week because... Uh, it's the, the sort of in a way the pivotal experience on which everything really hangs. This uh, th to the extent that we can uh, begin to see impermanence in ourselves and in our lives. To that extent, we can can begin to sort of let go of this sense of having a fixed, um, unchanging self. Um, 
that, and that's what begins to open a little chink of uh, freedom in our experience. And also, the, because the unconscious clinging to and protecting of this fixed self or ego, it, well, it leads to all the violence in the world. It leads to all the reactivity and all the anger and the greed. It's what undercuts all our efforts to be more compassionate. Um, this, all, in a way, is a constant uh, self-protecting and self-reference that goes with this, uh, this sort of fixed sense of self that we have. Um, so it's very, very important that we do begin to try and see through that more uh, and try and, in, in a way, it's all let go of that. <coughs> yeah, so as we we do begin to see through that fixed self. Um, and we be I think we begin to experience a bit more space in our lives, a bit more freedom, and the bubbling up of something a bit more positive and creative, and actually something quite authentic and precious in ourselves as well. And this, this is a sort of stage when we're moving into a sort of st stage of spiritual rebirth or transformation, when a, a real creativity begins to emerge, um, and we become less driven by those sort of unconscious um, desires and cravings and aversions. Yeah, there's something about the uh, our ego, I think. Um, I think I mentioned it. Perhaps I'll leave it to one. It does come up. I can't quite remember what it was right now, but uh, yeah. Just a sort of the sense of, um, I, guess, I guess it comes down to security that um, our egos are really our sense of security in the world. Uh, that sort of sense of knowing, having, trying. We, we hope we know who we are, and we anyway. We we sometimes think we don't know who we are, which can be a bit destabilizing. Uh, and the more we sort of feel sure that we know ourselves, in a way, the more secure we can feel. Um, but what we're looking, f in a way, looking for in our practice of the Dharma is to be more and more secure with the not knowing. Uh, which allows an, an sort of an openness, so, and that is how uh, it's said that compassion arises out of wisdom, it and that it arises out of that space when the self is not there, when the self is less there, when the uh, these tight demands of the self is less there, then we can be more human. That's when human beings are, we can sort of more naturally respond to life. Um, and metta and compassion are more natural expressions. So that's what I think I mentioned last week, spiritual death. Uh, this letting go of the self is sometimes referred to as a spiritual death. It's a death of the hard sort of grasping ego um, and a death of that fixed way of being that we've thought of as us. And it's when that, when we can sort of begin to let go of that sort of idea of this hard grasping ego that uh, the, the uh, possibility for spiritual rebirth takes place. And it, in fact, it's, uh, it seems to be it's sort of two sides of a coin, um, that spiritual death and spiritual rebirth uh, happen simultaneously. Sort of two, in a way, they're two sides of this process of uh, seeing into the nature of reality, that when we see when we see something, we are changed by that. Uh, when we be something new comes forth immediately, and it's all part of the same process. So, questions.
got a little poem here by uh, Bhante, and it's about the birth of the Buddha. Um, so the Buddha was apparently physically born in Lumbini, which is in nowadays it's in southern Nepal. Um, but this in the poem, I think Bhante is also he's referring metaphoric metaphorically to the Buddha's sort of spiritual birth as also as he awakens into insight and and wisdom. So there's a little reference here. He refer he mentions an Ashoka column. I don't know if anyone's been to India and been to any of the pilgrimage places in India, but <coughs> there was a great king in the century I think it was who went to all the great sites where the Buddha taught lived or taught the Dharma and he built a special a sort of column which he inscribed with a um, with um, writing on it that said what happened in that particular place so Bhante mentions that uh, as a in the poem so Ashva is going to read that <coughs> Lumbini I remember a pool of blue lotuses blooming at Lumbini, near the dusty high road. And the miracle of those blue flowers rising so purely from the black waters told me far more of the birth of the enlightened one than the broken Ashoka column or ruined shrine. So in a way, there's far more in that image than all the words that uh, it's hard to describe what spiritual death and spiritual rebirth might be about. But um, just a sort of the pure beauty of a lotus, beautiful lotus arising out of, um, apparently they often grow in, in mud and uh, stagnant waters. And you get this amazing contrast between, uh, I suppose it's, uh, it could be uh, us, our old ego, this sort of rather idea of this mud and the stagnant water. But out of that, there is a possibility for something very, very um, pure and beautiful to arise that we couldn't even imagine. That's uh, far beyond our imaginings, that, which means, you know, that's our potential, that each of us has got that potential um, to be far, far more than we can possibly imagine. Okay, occasionally we get little glimmerings of that, I think, in our experience. And, um, yeah, it can be very inspiring, or we, it can be sometimes... Uh, we just don't believe that, but yeah, I think that poem just opens that out. <coughs> so I think there's a bit of a sense of um, wonder or a sense of miracle about spiritual rebirth too. Uh, how amazing that we, we have moments when we're not imprisoned by our ego so much, uh, when we feel free to um, we sort of maybe cut through some habits and actually move towards somebody who we've felt uh, frightened by or averse to or... Um, we've been able to respond with kindness in a way that we often we've been perhaps too shy or um, you know, too caught up in other conflicting tendencies we do. We're, we're sort of freed up in that sort of way. Oh, there's another, um, this isn't a, a poem, but it's part of a very beautiful work called the Bodhicharya Tara, and it's been written by someone called Shantideva in I think of the 8th or 9th century. And he's talking about how um, this spiritual rebirth happens at the moment of adorning of enlightenment. As a blind person might find a jewel in heaps of rubbish, so too this awakening mind has somehow appeared in me. This is the inexhaustible treasure, alleviating poverty in the world. This is the supreme medicine curing the sickness of the world.
Yeah, so all, all this comes out of the, work, the very, very hard work we put into um, coming to understand our, um, our own tendencies, the habits, or the way that we cling on to our self-reference, um, our self-centeredness. Uh, all the work we put into that, just be, uh, we just need to keep on putting that work in over and over again, very uh, through the metabolism and the mindfulness of breathing in our ethical practice. And uh, we c- if we just sort of keep on doing that over time, uh, it's, it's said, well, enlightenment is assured, and also the possibility for this spiritual rebirth uh, is a real possibility it's, um, for all of us. And so this is a theme of you know, transformation, which is our theme this week. Um, so we're getting really into the, into the heart of that. And a little quote from Bante, he said, this is what it means to evolve spiritually. It means to achieve perfect vision by one means or another, and then to transform our whole being in accordance with that vision. And I'll just get Ursula to read a longer quote. Uh, this is how Bandy describes this, this whole stage now um, in his original teaching, the study seminar on the precious garland. Then comes what we call the stage of transformation. This is when the vision that you have seen, your experience of reality, starts, as it were, descending and transforming every aspect of your being. It's not just in your head, not even in your spiritual being. It pervades all parts of your being, all parts of your spiritual body. This is also a stage of meditation, in the sense of dwelling on that glimpse of reality, so as to deepen it and broaden it, and to bring it down, as it were, so that it pervades and transforms all the different aspects of one's being. Yes, I think um, I was saying last week as well that, uh, well, I guess for for me, for many of us, um, our focus is very much on moving towards opening towards insight rather than what happens after it, or opening towards um, deeper experience of life rather than what happens after that, what we can do with that. Um, But what we're hearing now, in a way, is partly to do with just the importance of... um, Yes, there's the importance of sort of taking that insight and letting it, uh, holding it, in a way, holding it in a sort of a way that we can uh, contemplate it, we can sort of stay with it and let it actually change us at a, a deep level. I think it's so easy to forget it as well or uh, sort of just move on to the next thing. Uh, but Banti saying here, whatever glimpse of vision or insight you may have had, Whatever you've realised, discovered or seen on the highest level of your being, you try to apply it to your practice at every level, so in, in a way, in day-to-day life. So that's one of the keys of um, spiritual practice, <coughs> to, in a way, trying to find precepts in, in our daily lives to, in a way, to enact our uh, inspirations or our aspirations. Last week I gave, a, um, in the introduction, of an image uh, of we were walking up a mountain um, and at the mountain top that was the image for a stage of insight and sort of seeing into the nature. 
of reality. And then after that, after we'd uh, seen that, we were sitting and absorbing that insight. Um, and yeah, the point I was making there was really that it does take time just to sort of sit and absorb those sort of experiences, sort of deeper experiences, um, which we may all have had, not necessarily in meditation, but also in our, in our daily lives. I think, as I think I mentioned last week also that quite often people have spontaneous experiences which are very, very profound actually. Perhaps uh, experiences of just a sort of flooding love, a feeling of love for, you know, that was just overpowering the heart or a feeling of inter interconnectedness, a real knowing that things are interconnected. And many, you know, several people I've talked to have had those experiences, e even in childhood or later on. Um, and we can actually go back to those experiences and just sort of sit with them, uh, even now, you know, go back to something that was perhaps that sort of sprung up in a meditation or at another time, and just sit with those and without really thinking about it, just sort of, you know, uh, sit with the quality of the feeling and the experience and let it sort of sink into our hearts, the implications of it sink, sink, sink into our hearts. Because I think it's often from that that sort of is a radical perhaps seeing or re-seeing of ourselves and of life. And it's from that that a, a new direction comes through in terms of what we're going to do with our lives or how we want to be in our lives. And it's so crucial to uh, listen to that and, and stay with that. So if life is like that, then I need to change. Uh, or if I am really like that, um, if this is what really matters to me, I should do something about it. It's a bit like that. I shouldn't put it off. So I think it's, it is important to let um, insights, you know, glimmers of insights, small and large, have their effect. Um, and they may, they may not be a conceptual thing, but maybe just an intuition or a feeling. And again, we, if we can just sort of sit with those and take them seriously, let them work their way through our beings so that they can transform us in body, speech and mind. That's traditionally how um, we talk of transformation through all the different aspects of our being. And if we can do that gradually, something new is born in us and uh, we're taking it seriously and letting it sort of stream through all of our activities and how we are in the world. We can begin to awaken to who we, we really are. We perhaps we get a glimpse sometimes of our innate goodness the sort of, and um, the freedom that we have to be authentic and to be, to, to be a force for the good. Um, yes. I think I know for myself, I, it's very subtle. Sometimes I get subtle uh, glimmerings of those sorts of experiences, uh, sort of below the surface of our being, which it's so easy to discount, um, particularly when we have attitudes to what, which, towards ourselves which may be quite habitually negative or habitually holding down uh, or saying, well, that doesn't really matter or that's not really important or you can't really feel that. Um, but probably, But the thing is, we probably do feel that and we... In each of us, there is a very pure uh, beauty. There is a very, very pure being uh, that could has potential to express itself more and more. Uh, and that's something just to really encourage in ourselves and give space for. Yeah. There's another a, a poem here by Rumi, or part of a poem, I think. 
Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into colour. Do it now. Okay. <laughs> Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into colour. Do it now. So that's the, in a way, the openness of possibility. I'm actually wearing um, a very colourful outfit in, because of the nature of the, this um, theme of spiritual liberation and rebirth. I thought I'd also point out that spiritual uh, death and rebirth, um, we're not all becoming the same through that. It doesn't sort of wipe out character and personality. Um, because I think sometimes that's a fear that we're all going to become sort of nice cloned Buddhists uh, w- without much of a personal, we, w- we shouldn't really have a personality and in fact we should all be you know, very metaphor and mindful and whatever. We're, going to be, we're just going to get more and more alike. Um, my experience of Buddhists is that they don't get more alike. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> they get weirder. It's uh, Ursh- Ursula's comment. <laughs> I suppose the... Uh, yeah, I think we become more and more ourselves, don't we? Uh, people seem to... There are ups and downs in the process, of course, when we get attracted to the cloned idea, and then we sort of pull back. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes we all see somebody else and we think, oh, I'd like to be like them. And so I think there's a positive in that, as well as a sort of, you know, a sort of sheep-like tendency. <laughs> so we can sort of balance the two, and we can be inspired by other people, but also very much... Uh, we're authentic, the authentic us, and we're going to... Uh, let ourselves grow um, in that way. So, yeah, the, 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 the thing about freeing ourselves up from the ego is that uh, at last we're free to be fully ourselves at our highest and our best, and our, we all have unique gifts, and so they can they can shine more and more, can't they? Um, we're free to be as creative and as positive and powerful as we're able to be. Um, yeah, a lot of our conditionings particularly female conditioning, but not only that, I think. I think male conditioning also has got its aspects of holding down. It, it has, actually, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Men have got to hold down their sort of more, um, I guess, stronger energies or aggressive energies or whatever it is. And uh, women uh, are, need, are meant to be holding down other sides. Mm-hmm. That's why our gender holds us down as well in some sort of way. Aha. We have another poem. This one's an excerpt by one by Pablo Neruda. And something ignited in my soul, fever or unremembered wings, and I went my way, deciphering that burning fire, and I wrote the first bare line, bare, without substance, pure foolishness, pure wisdom of one who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens unfastened 
and open. So having sort of opened up this uh, energy, this realm towards spiritual rebirth, I thought I'd just mention a few things that do hold us, may hold us back from this sort of radical transformation or <coughs> even from freedom, in fact. Um, it isn't always that easy to say yes to the light, is it? It's, uh, we have fears and um, habits that stop us doing that and voices that tell us we're, we're not good enough. And it's amazing how tenacious they can be, even though, though we know that they're not um, accurate even. Um, it's hard to still uh, not believe them. So uh, some of these might be some of your voices, I don't know. Uh, is that we're not good enough, I'm not good enough to be a Buddhist. Uh, there's no chance of me becoming enlightened. Uh, we will never change, I'll never change. Uh, I'm not good enough to be compassionate or metaphor, uh, so something's wrong with me anyway, fundamentally, and that's going to always be there despite any spiritual change that happens. So that's a wrong, a really wrong view, that there's something wrong with me, uh, that I'm not whole or acceptable. Hmm. So it's this part of our condition, maybe conditioning maybe in this life, what might be lifetimes of conditionings that have led us to feel that way about ourselves. It might be also, um, I'm thinking, a feeling of inner pain or inner darkness that, that just sort of feels like it's part of our personality or part of our nature. It's sort of fundamentally there. It's all a little bit like original sin, isn't it, from the Christian tradition. But uh, all of these are just uh, transient. These are all transient uh, mental states. And if we don't hang on to them, we can, they can just... Um, they can just sort of change and move on and fly away, really. I, uh, I read a very interesting piece by Dilgo Chiense, who's one of uh, Bante's teachers, and he was saying in that that actually there's a gap between every thought and no thought has to be automatically... No thought automatically continues into the next one unless we choose to let it. So that we can actually each... So creativity would be really consciously... Uh, choosing one thought and then the next thought and then the next thought there would be no habits at all um, there'd be no um, we wouldn't be wouldn't have to think in any particular way we'd be free if that makes sense a sort of absolute discontinuity between each mental event the, these are the links each of those links are just habit yeah so we have we do have these views though and even though they're irrational we may still need to keep on working on with them for some years. Um, yeah, based on old images. And sometimes there's critical, they're based on critical comments from people in the past, our families or our teachers. Very insidious, really, and hard to let them go. So I was, I was yes, um, I thought a very interesting, I quite like image that... Um, Bante gave once in a lecture called The Taste of Freedom. He said we could imagine ourselves like a piece of string. So our psychophysical organism that is us, we're like a sort of long piece of string or perhaps a piece of rope. And uh, so this, this represents the ever-changing psychophysical uh, Rachel-ing or Vanessa-ing. It's the, it's the verb of being, which is our flow of existence. 
However, uh, because we're rather insecure at the formlessness of it all, we have tied a knot in the rope, and that knot in the rope is us. That's how we consider as us to be. So we've sort of, in a way, we sort of stop the flow, and it's something recognisable that we sort of hang on to. It's the knot of our accumulated habits, really, or our ego. But uh, Banti was saying in the talk, well, as our ego has tied that knot, uh, well, it's able to untie it again, isn't it? It's as simple as that. So we could just ask it how it ties it up and untie it. So there's a, you know, that's a, in reality, we're not that knot. It doesn't have to be a knot. Uh, and that's a it, so it's a long job over many many years to um, in a way sort of see into that knot and begin to loosen it and let the flow happen mm. and sometimes we need to let go of holding on to the image of our, our pain or our, our own habits as being particularly bad or different from other people's or special in some sort of way um, and in a way we could say that uh, well, all our experiences are special and unique to us, but um, at the same time, almost everything probably would be being experienced as we speak by another hundred thousand or up to a million or several million people. There's, you know, there's such a lot of universality and experience in the world. Another little story. Uh, I think it's to do Aya Kema, who was a female. Um, Theravadan nun and she was giving a talk once and apparently at the end of the talk somebody came up and, and he said well I can't change I don't believe I can gain enlightenment and she said to him well what makes you so special that <laughs> 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 was great so we can, that's something we can think of if we have any of these uh, you know uh, abiding irrational um, blockages in our you know, in our faith that we can change. What makes me so special? Because everyone can change. This is what the Buddha said. And it's been borne out in history. So the Buddha even, um, well, he taught the Dharma to anybody who came to him. So there would be shopkeepers and um, royalty, kings and queens, thieves, prostitutes, beggars, all gained enlightenment one by one over the years. It uh, didn't matter what their background had been or even what their previous lives had been like. So even murderers, um, and the Buddha taught one very famous murderer called Angulimala, whose name meant something like necklace of fingers. Somebody who, he, uh, you've probably heard this gory story, he used to cut the finger off everybody, every person he killed. And he was trying to make a, hundred, a necklace of 108 fingers. Uh, but then eventually the, the people called on the Buddha to try and step in and the Buddha went and uh, they all said, don't go, don't go. But anyway, because they thought he'd kill the Buddha as well. But the Buddha, with his, um, just the power of his being, really, he met Angulimala and um, he did some ma slightly magical power so that Angulimala couldn't actually catch up with him. He, and Buddha was, Buddha was just walking along quietly and Angulimala felt like he was running as fast as he could and he couldn't catch the Buddha. Um, anyway, so he got him to stop and... Angulimala was so impressed by the Buddha's serenity that he gave up his uh, killing and became a, a monk and gained enlightenment uh, fairly soon afterwards, it seems. So. And there's other stories in later, I think it's a 13th century or 12th actually, 
the yogi Milarepa in Tibet, who was a, a bit of a mass murderer, really. He also, he, well, you he, he have to practice very hard if you are a murderer, but um, you've got even more negative karma to uh, work on than, you know, many of us, perhaps. But he, he also was uh, very, very impressive. And he's, there's two volumes of his songs. He taught the Dharma by singing, Milarepa did. He's a very, very wonderful, talented um, yogi. So we can transform even the heaviest of karma and the deepest of pain. Now, I was thinking a bit about my own experience. That, uh, I've been practicing the Dharma over about 30 years now, and well, I have felt very def definite shifts in my own experience in these sort of areas, having come to the Dharma with, uh, I think I was talking in my maybe my first and second talks, about some of my own experience of difficulty in um, uh, just, in just in my own attitude towards myself, really, that lack of confidence, shyness, and a sense of heaviness and pain in my heart as well. I definitely didn't like being who I was and didn't like myself very much. And sometimes it, so much it amounted to self-hatred. And I remember at another time feeling I, I was wounded in my heart somehow. And all of those things... Um, yeah, I've had to, in a way, be with and, and work with, and I think I spent quite a lot of time just trying not to look at it and pushing it away. But of course, that doesn't really, on the whole, that doesn't really help. Um, and I and I have found that you know, just turning towards being who I am with metta is incredibly uh, healing, actually, and transformative. Just to sort of stay in the presence of oneself and one's own pain and one's own heart uh, over over time. You, you have sort of struggled to find your own way into that and how to do that um, and just be very, very patient and keep coming back to that. But the, I think I'm sure Metta has been one of the main um, healing aspects in my spiritual life, actually. And on the other hand, also the practice of ethics. I think um, in terms of just um, Trying to sort of follow up uh, a metaphor ethical approach to life in my in my life has been one of the things that's given me a sort of I think it gives a sort of strength <coughs> an inner strength and a self respect which is really enormous especially if you don't like yourself very much you know, it, it, it actually gives you an unassailable reason to have be, to be proud of yourself if you are ethical I think it's one of the strongest um, factors in an opening of the heart actually uh, opening ourselves to we can really trust ourselves and our motivations if we're really ethical. And when we, of course, when we lapse from that, we can just try and being aware of that and confess that. And it's very, very powerful uh, transformation through that. So I think, yeah, meta, meta and ethics. And having the Sangha all around us at the same time, I don't think we could do it without Sangha because uh, you know, the, the friendship and the support and the care and also the fact that we, in a way, that we're all in the same boat. We all make mistakes and um, we're all fallible and imperfect. There's something rather helpful about that, being together, trying to sort of do something very difficult together in a way, but also very inspiring. So I thought I would talk a bit more about that because, uh, yeah, it's, it's part of this stage of letting ourselves be reborn. That uh, It's a shame if we... Um, are held back by old views of ourselves uh, and I think many of us do have old views 
uh, or and maybe quite negative, cynical views of ourselves. Um, but they can they can change. They can be transformed, particularly by confronting them and just acknowledging them. Sort of diving into the depths of them, really, and uh, letting something. That's it. That's the murk and the mud, isn't it? Of, out of which the lotus will be born and uh, will be born, and maybe it will have lots of flowers. The multi-flowered lotus. Um, I, d I thought I'd also mention something from my, my own experience again, because uh, I, I found metabolism really, really difficult when I first started doing it. I hadn't got a clue what meta was, and then I was doing it on a retreat, um, like maybe hours of meta each day, I suppose, which was probably a bit grueling to start with. But and then all of a sudden, I had this experience of myself. My heart was on fire. It was like my heart was fire. And it was it was something I'd never experienced before, and um, it was pretty shocking in a way. It was very it was a very good positive experience, but I couldn't really didn't know where it came from and what it really meant for me. But there was it was a very beautiful sense of my heart dissolving and all my inner boundaries having gone, in a way. And I I did realise from that that um, well I didn't initially I thought well how am I going to express this in my life. It felt like it was so important, um, and I couldn't see how me, as I normally was, could be like that, because I was so shy and blocked and everything. Uh, so that at that point, I that's where it really helped me to be with other Buddhists and people who understood the process I was going through and and also um, valued change in the way that I did. And I, you know, I decided then to give myself conditions where I could be supported to. Anyway, learn how to communicate myself more deeply and establish friendships. And I started coming to the centre more. And uh, at that point, um, and actually, I was able to join a, a Buddhist work team. We were working on a, a whole food shop in London. This is when I was about 28. Um, I joined the f for five years. I worked with a, a group of women Buddhists, uh, creating a whole food shop, and that that was just a wonderful experience, actually. Of just being able to experiment with myself a bit and explore a different way of being. But yeah, so I think emotions and views, in my experience, they change very slowly, but each change is highly significant. So uh, we shouldn't discount them. It is a little poem to end this section. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Also, there's a, in terms of um, spiritual rebirth, we could think about ourselves as though uh, there's an image of that within us as a white tree and a, a black tree. So it's, it's as though uh, this white tree um, is what it sort of grows with every uh, all the self meta and the ethical, skillful actions that we take. Um, so, as we keep on practicing and believing in ourselves. 
this white tree of our spiritual rebirth and our qualities and they're what will gradually become the strongest force within us and the um, allowing us to really open to the light and eventually we'll get to the point where we turn towards our heart and look for the old darkness that is so familiar and the arrows and the wounds that are so familiar and the limiting self-views and one day we'll find they're no longer there they've just gone it's just we've you know we have become liberated from them i think one at a time they will just they will just go and we'll we'll actually not be the person who's held back in that way anymore and i'm, I'm completely confident in that that all for all of us if we keep on practicing that is what will happen we will be able to just let go of any old inhibiting views and we'll be able to say to my, ourselves, well, actually, I am full of goodness. I do deserve to be enlightened. Um, it's a bit like the, the Buddha's earth, touching mudra when he gains enlightenment. So I deserve to be sitting here. And we'll be, we'll, we definitely, we will feel that ourselves. We can allow ourselves to open up to become a beacon of light in the world, uh, shedding the light of wisdom and clarity and serenity. Uh, each of us can be that person or that stream of um, non-person, stream of uh, flow of energy, psychophysical energy. I think this is where spiritual rebirth opens into quite a sort of magical, very different, non-conceptual sort of area because uh, eventually we're opening into um, areas where, I don't know, we're hoping to become more like the, the, the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas ourselves, that spiritual rebirth can take us you know, you know, transcends uh, anything we could imagine, really. So it's something, it, we, it's not just imagining ourselves at our best, but something quite beyond that, something something quite non-imaginable, really. Um, and Sabuti says, uh, we can't do this on our own. Our spiritual lives need opening to a higher force and a higher dimension at this point. It's a bit like we come to a point where uh, we need to, in a way, let go of the efforts we've been making and sort of be receptive to a, um, another sort of force. Perhaps it's the cosmic force to compassion in the universe. Um, and we can't use, at a certain point, we can't really continue to use the ego or the ordinary mind to do that because it's, we're going beyond that. We're sort of going into the unknown. And perhaps it's at this sort of point where we were moving into a more into intuitive, receptive sort of mode. And I think it's here where, you know, practices such as um, sort of invoking the qualities of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, chanting mantras maybe in poems and devotional pujas begin to sort of, in a way, open to something else, some sort of non-conceptual experience that can begin to inform us. It can begin to, we can sort of, in a way, learn from that. Our hearts can learn from that directly in some sort of rather magical way. So I thought, in a way, we're talking about going beyond ourselves, aren't we? And uh, I, th I thought, there's, yeah, there's two ways of doing this. One would be this opening up to the influence of the archetypal Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And another way would be dedicating ourselves to a purpose that's entirely altruistic and entirely sort of beyond ourselves, such as the aspiration to become a bodhisattva, uh, dedicate ourselves to gain enlightenment for the benefit of all. 
So th these are two things that we can we can do, we can decide to embark on and sort of throw ourselves into. So I thought, with in terms of invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, this could just even be sitting with an image of the Buddha, and uh, but anyway, sort of just t taking in how that feels, the the qualities of the the face or an aspect of just a gesture in the hand can sometimes mean quite a lot to us. Not not sort of thinking about it, but just sort of seeing how our hearts respond to an image and see what image we get drawn to as well. And maybe it's a different image at different times. I was thinking in the meditation before the talk about Green Tara uh, and how she um, she has a you know her hand stretched out towards us all the time in this gesture of giving and she's sort of stepping down from the lotus so it's this sort of quality of, of compassion that's reaching out to us yeah we, we can in a way we can just uh, explore what moves us or what attracts us or what feels like us at our highest level and give ourselves time to maybe at home as well just to sort of sit with sit with a bodhisattva you could chant their mantra a bit and just sort of bring them to mind or have a look at their image um, the mantra is said to be the uh, it's meant to be the um, the sort of audio equivalent the audio equivalent uh, of uh, their true nature the true nature of the bodhisattva is expressed through their mantra so actually just through chanting a bodhisattva's mantra for quite a long period of time we can sort of perhaps uh, approach a sense of who they are, what, what they, what that quality actually is, and how that resonates with us, with something in us. Because we can only really understand that probably from our own experience of some a very subtle experience that we have of a bodhisattva in our own hearts. And so there's many different archetypes, even of compassion. Interesting. It's interesting how there's so many different. Um, uh, approaches to compassion even Green Tara but there's also Kshitigaba who voyages into the hell realms so it's a very different figure he's uh, you often see him standing or um, dressed as a monk and sometimes he's surrounded by the smoky light of the hell realms and he's looking down into the hell realms and he actually does go down into the hell realms to uh, rescue beings who are who are there and that could, that could be sometimes what it is is that we become so inspired by a figure that we want to become like that and then our whole spiritual life can be guided by that inspiration perhaps we want to be uh, somebody who could do that who could actually face hell and go down there to be of uh, to rescue beings and then of course there's archetypes of wisdom and energy uh, purity and of course um, we, we're um, looking very much at archetypes that have come from the eastern mind as well, the, the mind in India and Tibet and um, we very much in the west, Buddhists in the west, we're going to need to be, we'd like to anyway, try to sort of in a way reach our own archetypes, source our own archetypes that meet those transcendental qualities in a way because each of those archetypal figures, what they're really doing uh, is they are, they're sort of for those people who first imagined them, they were sort of um, symbolizing a particular pure quality of enlightenment for them in their meditation. They, but apparently they've all come out of 
an individual uh, great pra practitioner of meditation. So somebody at some point, um, you know, Tara, this image of Tara or the Buddha, came, of Amitabha here, came to them as a particular embodiment of compassion or whatever it's been, wisdom or love. And uh, over time, I think Bhante said perhaps it will take centuries, but over time we'll develop our own very strong archetypes from our own culture, which will perhaps mean a bit more even than the Eastern archetypes do. I find them very beautiful myself and I can relate to quite a few of them, but I can sort of see what he's saying that we do need to, at some point, develop our own archetypes. Mm, sort of go a bit beyond, because even those images can become a bit fixed as well. So I was just going to say a little bit about this other point of dedicating ourselves to an entirely altruistic purpose, something bigger than us. Um, I think I, I remember when I was about 19 or 20, feeling I wanted to throw myself wholeheartedly into something, but I didn't know what it was, and uh, the career I had at the time just didn't seem worth it really even though it was a, it was you know something I was was very worthwhile career but it didn't engage my whole depths and I think when I found the Dharma I felt this is something I can really throw myself into wholeheartedly um, and the particular an, an, an altruistic purpose well perhaps the altruistic purpose that we could um, just sort of throw ourselves into and sort of in a way let ourselves go with is this aspiration to become a bodhisattva to uh, dedicate ourselves to enlightenment for the benefit of all. And if we do this, even if we um, you know, sort of dedicate ourselves just to one little edge of it, because it seems rather a big aspiration, we can allow that to take us beyond ourselves uh, gradually. And for me, this is why I joined the Tri Ratna Buddhist order as well, um, because, I, um, because the whole project of the order is um, an altruistic one. That's what, that's how I see the order. That our community, uh, our community and the order, really, the whole sangha here, in a sense, shares that aspiration to be of benefit to the world, uh, and that seems like the only thing worth doing. And if we really sort of throw ourselves into that, then uh, we're going to be engaging our with our hearts more and more deeply. Yeah, so the, the Sangha and then the Order uh, even more is a, a community of individuals who have had this, had this vision. And uh, each individual Order member individually takes this step to commit themselves to, in a way, to commit themselves to in, attaining, attaining enlightenment for the benefit of all. And, well, because all of us are so far from being perfect, obviously, it's a very, this is a very strong working ground for our egos. So it has to be a good thing, <laughs> uh, a high aspiration and a long way to go. So uh, yeah, the so we commit ourselves as a sangha to help each other to do that, to sort of to work. To, we commit ourselves to work together in harmony, and therefore we commit ourselves to work with anything that arises that uh, that that um, threatens that harmony, because you know differences between individuals are still going to happen. Um, in the order, you know, in, in any in any spiritual community, and in a way, that's one of the uh, you know, one of the sort of main areas of going beyond the ego is 
often just to do with other people, it's to do with self and other, the ten tensions between self and other. Yeah, and one of, one of the aspects of <coughs> ordination as well really very much brings out this uh, theme of spiritual rebirth is receiving a new name as well. Um, so when we're ordained, a name is chosen for us by our preceptor, the person who ordains us. And this, this often brings out a, or emphasises a sort of quality in us that could be a sort of leading edge to our spiritual growth and unfoldment. And obviously this is a very, it's a very powerful ritual to be given a new name and an opportunity in a way to very much go beyond an old self and uh, it's, it's a constant reminder actually to, to do that and a constant reminder to a constant reminder or a particular practice that we can undertake yeah. so I thought that's something that uh, it's always interesting to do if you want to do that is ask an order member uh, about their name and what it means to them and what sort of practice it's been for them to have that name you never really you'd never know until you ask each person what's what the story is behind their name yeah I mean uh, yeah, I think I've mentioned my name in previous previous weeks but uh, yes and yes mm. can be quite a, a it's quite a practice in other ways as well and the my mother was very upset when I was given a different name. So the, you know things like that that you have to bear in mind that uh, yeah, she had to. We had to rethink our relationship and what that meant to be her daughter with a no longer the name that she gave me when I was born. And, mm, it should be quite sort of sensitive around that. But I think it re it actually there was an aspect of rebirth in our relationship after that, in a way, which was a sort of change. So there's something about joining a spiritual community that also represents a sort of collective spiritual rebirth as well. And Banti has suggested that uh, for the order, he's suggested a sort of mythic symbol for the order of the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, um, that in joining the order we mythically become part of that Bodhisattva, or, or at least we aspire to, obviously become part of that bodhisattva uh, and this bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara is a very pure white being and he holds uh, to his heart the jewel of the aspiration to gain enlightenment and then actually he has a thousand arms which radiate around him and each of the hands in those arms hold a different implement so it's in a way they're, they're all different ways of helping beings because um, every well, beings are so different that they, you know, if you only had one or two ways of helping, then you would actually not be able to help uh, enough beings. You need you need sort of. So this Avalokiteshvara is infinitely resourceful, and the myth the myth we have in the order is that each order member is one of Avalokiteshvara's hands. Actually, we have more than a thousand order members now. It, it worked better as a myth up until the thousand point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's just it's just a myth, isn't it? It's just a sort of symbol. So. I imagine actually Avalokiteshvara probably has millions of hands, in fact. But uh, so each order member, the myth is we c we have our own unique qualities and insights and ways of helping that are expressed through the particular tool that we may mythically hold. 
So in a way, that sort of myth and ritual is something that's can be quite, it can be quite rich in one's spiritual life too. You can sort of, and we can all of us can do that sort of thing. Well, what would be what would be the tool that we would hold in our hands? And yes, there's a the, the, in a way the whole image represents sort of unity amidst diversity as well, a sort of a unification of uh, path amidst the, the uniqueness and the diversity of all the different people engaged in it, in the order and the whole spiritual community. Yeah, yeah so I think that's a very, it feels like a very beautiful um, aspiration to aspire to with, with the spiritual life to uh, even, you know, to be a hand of this vast uh, ideal of Avalokiteshvara. Th that um, there's, uh, you can do more, there's more, um, what is it, the um, collective is more than the sum of the parts, something like that. I can't remember quite what that saying is. Whole. The whole is more than the sum of the parts. Thank you. Very good. There's some, yes, something about that, that as a collective we can do far more than we can do individually and that's partly why that sort of a collective um, endeavour is going to be what works. Anyway, I'm going to, we're going to uh, draw to a close now with another poem by Bhante about the, uh, in a way the strains but also the possibilities of spiritual rebirth. It's called Secret Wings and it's, it's language is a little bit archaic but um, Anyway, so let's just see through the archaicness, which may give an extra beauty into the, the flight of the secret wings. Oh, not secret wings. Oh, yeah, it's changed. That's right, I forgot about that. It was going to be secret wings. No, what we're going to have is um, something even better. Maybe we'll have secret wings later on. <laughs> the puja. So secret. <laughs> yeah, they're secret. They have to be kept separate. This is uh, Bounty talking about why, why he's a Buddhist. Um, yeah, and I've, I thought that was even better because it's a, it's him talking about his aspiration, um, that what's led him on the spiritual path, really, <coughs> his fundamental aspiration. I believe that humani humanity is basically one. I believe that it is possible for any human being to communicate with any other human being, to feel for any other human being to be friends with any other human being. This is what I truly and deeply believe. This belief is part of my own experience. It is part of my own life. It is part of me. I cannot live without this belief and I would rather die than give it up. To me, to live means to practice this belief. Therefore, this belief is part of my religion. It has nothing to do with the way in which I dress, nothing to do with what I call myself. It is a matter of the way I am, the way I exist. It is the way I naturally function in the world. This is what religion really is. It is what you most truly and deeply believe. It is what you are it is what you're prepared to die for. It is your life. It is what makes you what you are. It is what makes you behave in the way that you do. Yeah, thanks. That's the, the bunch with the last word. <laughs>